This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Transhuman role-playing. Journalist burn. More Rob Ford. And the Baltimore Space Program. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The uh, clattering of dice and the thud of uh, lovingly bound hardback books tell us that once more we are in either the gambling library or the gaming hut. <laughs> and I think that... We're certainly in the Kickstarter loot the hut. The Kickstarter loot hut. We could be in, in the loot hut, which is a different hut entirely. Well, it's, it's an annex. It's an annex. We've it's had a loot annex. the gaming hut to contain our Kickstarter loot. Anyway, the gaming hut is uh, where we find ourselves amongst all of these <laughs> sumptuous options. And uh, today, uh, Robin wishes to discuss... Inhumanity. The O, the Inhumanity. So I thought we'd uh, kick around some thoughts today about transhuman gaming or the transhuman genre. Uh, so this is a science fiction subgenre in which we envision what humanity will become after it is changed so much, either by technological or biological or some sort of quantum singularity sort of thing from our current state of humanity into a state of transcendence. And of course, like all things that deal with the theme of transcending humanity, it asks the question, what is it to be human? And what uh, will humans be after they stop being human? And so the uh, that's an interesting theme to play with, first of all. And Ken, what would you say are the, is sort of the core of the emotional appeal of this idea and the, the genre that it drives? Well, part of it is, I think, uh, almost religious. There's someone who has uh, cleverly defined the uh, singularity as the rapture for nerds. And I think that there is a large component of our gaming audience that uh, just can't wait to be uploadable to a computer and get to live in the holodeck with Captain Picard and um, uh, the uh, vampires from Twilight and all their friends forever and ever and ever and never have to, uh, you know, study war no more. And I think that, you know, as heavens go, that's probably a, a, about as good a one as you're going to get. Um, but I think that that is a big part of the initial draw, is that it's not so much the gaming is the escapism, in the sense that it normally is. You know, I want to be Superman, I want to be Green Lantern, but I want to be in a world where it is possible for this heaven, this secular heaven, uh, to exist. And I think that in a similar way to conspiracy gaming, where you want to play in a world where things are more interesting than they are in our world. I think transhuman gaming sort of feeds a little of that same uh, itch that you want to play in a world where uh, the the horizon is just a little bit wider technolog technologically, that, that that hill that we can see but can't quite get to, that we're actually standing on top of it. I think that's a, that's a natural, you know, sort of a human frontier impulse, and I think that transhuman gaming feeds that, you know, as a genre, even if you're not necessarily playing... Uh, a Zock spirit that, that lives in hyperspace and ignores uh, the, the mortal world, but you know that such things are possible there. 
Right, and there's also sort of a tie-in with body mod culture, and if you extrapolate that into a metaphor about the future and start to wonder what sort of modifications that you could ring on the human body once you have uh, decades of genetic manipulation and cyber implants and all of these things that we are first beginning to look at. And uh, unlike a lot of science fiction subgenres, it seems that this one, if anything, is not uh, dystopian, but sort of oddly utopian about the prospect of leaving ourselves behind. And to, to what extent do you feel that this one of the appeals is not uh, emotion, but a desire to escape from the limitations of uncomfortable human emotion. I think that the desire to escape from the limitations of uncomfortable human, human emotion is itself an emotional desire. Um, I, I don't know. I, I suppose you could say that you've logically argued yourself into it, but since you're logically using things that don't have a, um, a quantifiable, you know, premise, you know, I, I suspect that it, that it, it's all sort of an emotional reaction. There are people who think, who look at the transhuman universe and they say, oh my God, I can't imagine anything more awful than to be, uh, you know, in a computer all the time or, or, uh, turn myself into a goldfish or whatever it is that, that people want to do. And then, of course, we, we both know plenty of people who can't wait to be, you know, sentient octopi in the internet. And so I think that the, you know, separating out, you know, emotion from any utopia is, I think, the wrong direction, because utopias are all, to one extent or another, even when they're done by, you know, great logicians like Sir Thomas More, are emotional responses to the world around you. And so, in terms of just the practical problem of playing a fun game set in a transhuman universe, the first challenge, then, is to, as humans interestingly portray characters who have transcended humanity. And there's an internal contradiction in there that if we are going to, if we are fantasizing about a future in which we have become persons who are unrecognizable to us today, how do you play an unrecognizable character in a way that seems consistent and relatable and is recognizable to all of the people at the table playing it. So, and I guess you could ask the same question about a uh, more traditional science fiction setting in which everyone plays a truly alien being, except that there are very few examples of that in the history of uh, gaming. And there are, I suppose, more examples of that in uh, science fiction literature, but they're still pretty thin on the ground because of that core challenge of how do you relate to something that by definition is supposed to be so far apart from us that it is no longer us or does not resemble us. So I guess you've got uh, Drune, which is an early, uh, earlier setting, which is, is it science fantasy or? I always thought of Drune as science fantasy, but I think you can probably get an argument either way. But there's one where you're you know, recognizable humanity is is absent. But mostly, uh, we are used to playing uh, people, and there's usually going to be one or two people around the table in any gaming group who are comfortable playing a really completely out there alien being. Um, most people who want to play aliens want to play uh, recognizable, fun characters who look different and have different powers. So how do we create a support structure for people to enjoyably play completely alien, transcendent former humans. Well, I think we are looking, when we look at transhuman games, at the same sort of thing that we're looking at when we're looking at medieval fantasy games. 
uh, obviously no one can, you know, play an elf and no one can play uh, a real honest-to-God magician because those things don't exist, but you can play sort of analogs of those based on the fiction, and people who are big transhumanists have read a lot of the transhuman fiction, so they can start by aping the voices of the various transhuman characters from Peter F. Hamilton or from Charlie Strauss or, or whoever their favorite one is. And the other thing is, of course, we're not really playing medieval fantasy. We're playing 21st century Americans and Europeans who happen to be wearing chainmail and swinging swords around, which is why we're not, you know, constantly worried about our social status and we're not, um, uh, you know, uh, stopping to pray at Vespers every morning and we're not um, uh, dying at age 35 of rickets or whatever it is. We're, we're playing modern characters. And when you play a transhuman game, you're still playing 21st century humans, but 21st century humans who are living in this, you know, super future in the same way that you're playing 21st century humans who are living in the medieval past. And to any given extent, someone can play more or less involved elves, right? You can have a character who I'm sure, you know, writes all their character journals out in Tengwar and uh, only speaks in um, uh, blank verse when they tell people which orcs they're shooting at or whatever sort of elven-y thing makes them feel more elven. And similarly, you can have people who play transhuman characters as more or less alien and incomprehensible. But the thing is that at some point, you know, you have to get the, you know, the dwarf or in this case, the asteroid miner to uh, back your play and you have to roll dice to hit the, you know, Neptunian or whatever it is. And at some level, there has to be a human interface or else the game falls apart. Right. And here's where also the structure of uh, the adventure genre, which is almost always the underlay of whatever seems to be any genre of role-playing comes in. Because once you have an adventure, you have uh, goals. These goals may be pre-supplied if the adventure is uh, pre-published or uh, heavily pre-planned by the GM, or it can be improvised uh, during play as you go with input from the players in a more player-driven setup. But in either case, the existence of an adventure requires a goal and requires a group goal and probably different individual reasons for pursuing that group goal. And as soon as you have a understandable goal, you have an understandable motivation, and therefore you have a route into the characters, no matter how uh, putatively alien they may be on the surface. Yeah, and again, I think that the people are sort of making a little bit of a, dr a self-drama out of, you know, the difficulty of playing a transhuman character. If you're playing a character who has any concerns that are relevant to a gaming group, they're going to be understandable to humans because a human wrote the adventure. So while your, you know, artificial intelligence may spend most of its time doing ninth dimensional Riemannian tensor calculus, because that's the really important thing, that portion of its attention that is trying to find the lost thorium is still the part that you're playing. And in the same way that, you know, I have, I have a cat, and obviously a cat's brain is more alien than even a transhuman's brain is going to be, but I can pretty much guess at motives and intentions and emotional states for my cat. Uh, many of which involve tuna. Yeah, well, yeah, it's pretty much always the same answer, admittedly, with Virgil. But, um, but I think people who have, who have other pets, you know, or horses or dogs or whatever, have the same sense that being inhuman does not mean that their emotional state or their desires are closed off to you. And the more you know about your, your animal, your, your uh, non-human buddy, the more you're able to sort of read, even if you're fooling yourself, you're able to read 
you know, nuances in that are relatively complex. And I think, again, the fact that you are still playing a human, either a, a, something that's designed to mimic some aspect of humanity, like a full-on AI, or you're playing something that is descended from humans, like a, a transhumanly mutated octopus or a, or a, um, uh, or a zoxed uh, person that's been uploaded into the, into the holodeck, um, you're still, you have that, that substrate of recognizable human things that you can use as a start. And then, again, the flavor that you put onto it, the, the degree of transhumanity that you add to it, is the same degree as, as our, our friend who's playing the elf. I mean, how elfy does he want to be today? Right, and it might be a useful exercise to sort of make a chart of oppositions and not too long a chart because a few compelling ideas is always more interesting to deal with and easier to play than a large list of different things is to sort of come up with a list of oppositions, a column of your human-like impulses and a column of your alien impulses and look at uh, how many of those that you can bring into play and how many of those you can use to hook into the adventure premise, whether it's player-generated or uh, GM-generated. And within any given group, there are going to be a range of desires as to how alien you want your character to be. If you are uh, sort of a storyteller or method actor style player, uh, you probably will be more attracted to the idea of really exploring the genre and getting in there and doing something that is uh, quite alien and perhaps even baffling to your fellow players. Whereas if you are a casual gamer or a someone who, a, a butt kicker player, uh, you may want to uh, play a more accessible character who is uh, still uh, more human than others. And in extreme cases, if you're very uncomfortable with the setting, but are just sort of going along with it out of group amity, you, you know, could use any of the variety of devices to create a sort of viewer identification character, the way that if there is a transhuman genre movie, there will probably be one central character who somehow is outside that world and has to experience or uh, have it explained to them. Yeah, like there's the one human guy in Farscape or whatever. And so uh, what do we want to look at in terms of our GMing techniques in order to enable the alien players to be alien and the uh, players who are more comfortable with a more standard character to remain standard? How can we achieve harmony between those goals and still run a fun, interesting game? Well, I think that you begin by really sort of establishing the sort of sense of wonder that is the contact between the human and the non-human, the human and the transhuman. I think that the players who are playing humans or the players who are playing human-aspected uh, robots or AIs uh, need to at least have a sense of the alienness of the transhuman universe, or else you're playing a game that's basically like we're playing in, in my, uh, my CODA system game, where I've got, you know, two AI players and, and three robot players, and I think a synthetic was built from a clone tank and some number of aliens, but because it's a sort of Star Trek model, they're all acting like, you know, human character actors. They're not acting like, you know, truly alien beings in, in any real sense. But I think that if you really want to engage with the with the guts of transhumanism, just like if you want to engage with the guts of high fantasy or the or the guts of historical role playing, you have to find that thing that is different that that aspect of the setting or that aspect of the story that is different from standard you know twentieth century television, and you know make sure that the, the the story leads through it and that it can lead 
you know, past it the first time and then near it the second time and then into it the third time and then deep into it the fourth time so that the players who aren't acclimated have a sense of at what point they say, my character is going to wait on the ship while the transcendent uh, beings descend into the Jovian atmosphere and talk to the giant energy collective. And one interesting arc that you could create is you could set up a campaign structure where the uh, characters early on are in the initial stages of whatever their various transcendences are, and that the arc of the uh, campaign, which has a definite endpoint, is the one in which they transcend humanity completely and become sentient energy beings or, uh, you know, car components or whatever it is that they're ultimately uh, moving toward being, and that you could have a sort of a reverse humanity scale where you start off with a lot of humanity points, and your goal is to do things over the course of all the adventures to shed those humanity points, trade them in for more powers, and then finally when you shed all of them, that gives you your climactic final moment where it is determined what exactly the nature of each character's inhumanity is going to be. Sort of the opposite arc of Promethean or Vampire, then, where you are exactly. uh, trying to alienate yourself. I think that you would probably want to get a lot of player buy-in on the nature of that game before you ran it, or you want to run it for players who are very, very sort of trusting of you as a GM, and either way, I don't think you'd want to extend it too long in, you know, uh, in, in, in game time. I, I think that that's the sort of arc that works best if you can see it happen and then move on beyond it. Uh, unless, you know, out there there may be a whole table full of, of people who are just eager transhuman beavers, but in my experience, those are usually a minority at any given game group. And that, you know, brings us back to the original question that we began the segment with, which is, uh, to what extent is the core appeal of this idea the thing that drives people toward it, and to what extent is this sort of a cool level of chrome on top of your usual adventure genre in which a gang of crazy misfits gets together to have uh, kooky adventures. I, I, th- I think that, and the good transhumanist science fiction games can be played on both levels. Is that, I mean, you look at transhuman space for GURPS or Eclipse Phase, both of those can support either of those sorts of layers of play. And having come full circle, it's time to uh, regain our humanity in order to step into our next hut. And since we had to undergo retinal scans before entering this hut and uh, sign yet another uh, non-disclosure agreement on pain of jail time, we must be in the Tradecraft hut. And this week I thought we would jump from a story in the news to the presentation of that theme in fiction and gaming. And this is the so-called war on leaks being waged by the Obama administration. There's been a lot of uh, concern raised uh, by the a professional press corps in the U.S. about a couple of recent incidents, and I, as a uh, person who is suspicious of uh, power in all of its forms and interested in transparency, was set to feel one way about it, and then as I learned more about the story, I wound up feeling the other way about it. Uh, the two examples are uh, a uh, 2010 uh, case against a former government advisor named uh, Jinwoo Kim, uh, which is now proceeding through the courts. And it turns out that uh, Fox uh, News reporter James Rosen was named uh, in one of the government filings as an unindicted co-conspirator 
in a, an espionage case, uh, which was, I think, sort of a workaround in order to get at the leaker. And this was someone who revealed to a reporter that the North Korean government was going to respond to a provocation uh, with another nuclear test. And that's not an incredibly surprising <laughs> thing for them to do because that's not 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 quite the H bomb secrets. <laughs> yeah, that's they they have a toolbox with one tool in it, and uh, they they use that tool in response to everything. And so initially, I, 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 I it seems Todd Rundgren will respond to this with a drum solo. Indeed, and so you know the initial response is well, that's sort of a duh story. Why is someone being prosecuted for that, and why is a reporter uh, being called someone who's party to criminal espionage, even if he's not being charged with it, just to reveal that sort of obvious thing. But then when you drill deeper into the story, that it turns out, well, the reason they knew this is that the uh, leaker is uh, allegedly anyway uh, revealed the existence of an intelligence asset within the high North Korean command. And so this, of course, is a problem if you are that intelligence asset or if you are the uh, uh, handler who is trying to uh, run that asset and all of a sudden uh, he's got to look over his shoulder because the South Koreans are looking for their mole. Um, and the other case uh, was a case where the uh, AP reporters have had uh, a whole lot of phone traffic uh, intercepted and even the phone traffic of some of their parents intercepted because the AP jumped the gun by one day uh, revealing the existence of a foiled Al-Qaeda plot to put an underwear bomber on a plane. They were asked, uh, they knew about it quite a bit in advance, but they were asked to delay for just one more day before revealing the story. And they said, to heck with that. We're not going to risk getting scooped. And so they broke the story uh, a day before they were supposed to. And again, this is a case where it seems as if this uh, burned the CIA asset who was inside that Al-Qaeda cell who otherwise might have been able to go back into the cell and otherwise now uh, has uh, been revealed by that story because they were unable to get the arrangements in place to make sure that he was covered. Now, if you're going to believe either of those accounts, of course, you have to believe the thing that government sources are saying not on the record, i.e. leaking about mm. it. But, uh, uh, Ken, did you undergo the same sort of uh, shift from uh, concern to, hey, wait a minute, maybe they have a point that I did? Well, in the, uh, in the James Rosen case, uh, you have to keep in mind that this is the first time, and Nixon didn't do this with the Pentagon Papers. He never prosecuted uh, the New York Times as under the Espionage Act. That's never happened. No one has ever uh, prosecuted the reporters. They've only prosecuted the leakers, and they prosecuted Ellsberg, not the the Times reporters. So, right. regardless of of what's going on, this is a whole new level of um uh, of, of government action in in espionage cases. And uh, when uh, the North Korean case, uh, the existence or non-existence of a North Korean mole didn't come out in the original James Rosen piece that was reported. That has only come out as the administration has been desperately leaking to explain why they're investigating James Rosen, right? I mean, the, the Rosen did not file a story saying, you know, based on information from this North Korean mole. And again, the original Rosen piece, which I read, you know, when it came out, because I was interested in North Korea being uh, troublesome because I was writing a spy game, uh, was exactly the same North Korean piece that has been written as long as I've been paying attention to North Korea 
which is, like you say, North Korea is feeling it's back to the wall, therefore it will do something terrible. And it was just a, a relatively toothless piece of analysis. Uh, I, I assume that the product that was provided to the president was more toothsome, but whatever came out on Fox was, was not particularly uh, in- interesting. And all of these data are coming out of the, the dig around. So in the, in the Rosen case, I have not really changed my mind one way or the other. Uh, with the AP case, I began, um, in sympathy with the, uh, with the, um, uh, with the government because investigating leaks is sort of what you're supposed to be doing. The fact that Obama has prosecuted more, uh, people or more government, uh, officials under the Espionage Act than all of his predecessors put together. I, I thought of as, you know, evidence that Obama is actually paying a little more attention to national security than he tries to pretend, uh, when he's, you know, addressing San Francisco donors. But now that we discover that sort of the levels and ridiculousness of the AP story specifically, which is, for example, that it wasn't a CIA infiltrator, as I understood it, it was an MI6 infiltrator, and that the AP had already held the story up for uh, some number of days, possibly weeks, and then was asked to hold it up until after the Obama administration had a press conference about it. Now, if you're at the stage where you're having a press conference, you pretty much need to have gotten your guys out of, you know, out of the Yemeni Al-Qaeda circle, because press conference organizations leak anyway. And and so the AP case is actually less, uh, you know, than meets the eye, I find, as I look into it. So do we, or does the intelligence establishment need something that isn't the Espionage Act, but is a loose lips sink ships act or are they well they have that in in britain it's called the d notice right and you can preemptively uh, silence the press on any subject in the united states we believe that modeling our press law after great britain is sort of the opposite of why we had a revolution in the first place so i think that um what we need uh is you know a, a great many firings in the cia and the defense department and you know jail time for people who are leaking if obama is serious about that but you know, going after the reporters for just doing their job and sitting there while people call them, especially, as you point out, when people in the White House are calling them to leak the progress of leak investigations, I, I think that, that that becomes, A, surreal, and B, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an abuse of the First Amendment and shouldn't happen. And one of the suggestions coming out of this is that although they're referred to as the Obama war on leaks, that in fact a lot of these things are generated from lower down and part by uh, local prosecutors. And one of the reasons that that is happening more and more under Obama's watch is that it is just the technology has now progressed and the state of surveillance of the government on itself has progressed to the point where it's just a lot easier now to launch and complete a leak investigation so that the evidence is easier at hand. Therefore, there are more uh, prosecutions uh, being launched. So what ultimately do you think the the line should be? Should there be a complete shield for all uh, reporters, no matter uh, what they uh, report on and no matter uh, who gets blown? Or are we assuming that no one is actually getting blown and that's just the standard excuse being used to justify this sort of self-perpetuating and essentially kind of useless process. Uh, back when, I think it's James Risen, the New York Times reporter who's uh, done all this really great uh, national security state research, 
he blew the SWIFT uh, bank account monitoring program under the Bush administration in, I think, 2005 or 2006, did a big multi-part series on it in uh, the Times, and that was an ongoing investigation. And there was lots of people calling for James Risen to be thrown in prison, but again, in this case, it was people on, on my side of the ideological fence. Uh, but again, it's it's not James Risen's fault that this was uncoverable. It's the fault of the CIA and the fault in that specific case, I think, of the Treasury Department, that the uh, that the evidence was, was either leaked to him or was so badly uh, concealed as to constitute uh, criminal uh, uh, behavior. Now, you can argue that James Risen was unpatriotic for revealing a wartime strategy in a time of war, but I, I, again, being unpatriotic shouldn't get you jailed. It, you know, it should maybe get you um, uh, shamed and hissed at, but you know, you, I think that if we don't trust the press to know what is a critical story and what is not a critical story, then th- there's no point having a press at all, and we can all save a great deal of time and just read whatever the White House wants to print. I don't think I've been more heartened to have you disagree with me than, than ever before. Well, you know, it happens. Yes. Um, so shifting gears to uh, playing an espionage game, uh, the role of the press and being blown by the press in your game sort of depends on the reality level of spy thriller that you're engaged in. Obviously, that's something that the Bond-level superhero secret agent doesn't really have to deal with, whereas if you go down to the other side of the spectrum, to the Le Carre side of the spectrum, you're very often dealing with the prospect of not only evading enemy agents and your rivals within your own agency, but also this outside force of the press. So what sort of plot hooks uh, do you think this sort of story uh, suggests for possible thriller scenarios? Well, I think in in thrillers specifically, there is the prejudice that the press are going to be the good guys, right? That um, in Three Days of the Condor, if uh, Robert Redford can reveal it all to the Washington Post, then everything's going to come out all right. And then at the end of the movie, uh, spoiler uh, for a 30-year-old movie, um, it's re- it's revealed that, um, you know, what makes you think that we don't control them, too, is what the, the bad guy says to Redford at the end. And I think that one of the interesting things you can do in a spy genre is you've got this, you know, reporter or group of reporters or news organization that's sort of dogging your heels and, and following you around and getting your information. And who are they working for? There is There's a case in the United States where there are people who vent, who were sort of like train spotters, they were writing down the tail numbers of CIA flights out of Miami. Uh, and they would just sort of look at all the planes taking off with high-powered binoculars, and anyone that wasn't coming over the uh, air traffic control radio, they just write down the tail number and then start tracing them around the world, and they found out a bunch of CIA uh, black aircraft that way. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, that's just, you know, great national security hobby work of the sort that, you know, finds uh, secret aircraft and everything else. But on the other hand, if those guys are, you know, connected up with the bad guys, then your, you know, seemingly uh, secret way out has been blown without you even knowing it necessarily. And I think that anyone who wants information in a spy thriller is at best a rival and at worst an enemy. And I think that one of the great things about adding another player, is, assuming that the game can support that level of complexity, is that you're adding another layer of, of, of uncertainty. And the general prejudice on the part of players to believe that the reporter must be a fellow innocent or someone who's being hounded by the mysterious conspiracy is a great trope 
to use against them in a Hall of Mirrors, like array type universe. Another thing you can also do is sort of use that as a meteor that sort of comes into the side of a scenario and shakes things up, especially when the players have turtled and are running out of ways to get information or just sort of too rattled to go and get more information. You can then have a big revelation appear in the press, right? Their Google alert can mm -hmm. ring in the middle of the night and they can see that that this story has broken in an unexpected way. And then the challenge then becomes getting closer to the story and getting closer to the information without yourself being observed when this story has now blown up into a major news story. And there are reporters, you know, camped outside whatever uh, installation it is that you need to suddenly infiltrate or are dogging the heels of the witness that you need. And you need to now assure them that you are not the press if someone has gone to ground and you need to find them. So it doesn't necessarily just mean free information, but it can sort of be an inbreak of information that changes the uh, status quo and gives you a, a new set of challenges when the previous set of challenges uh, seemed daunting or seemed to lead to a, a plot roadblock. And another thing that you can have is, is not just not your press, but the press of a foreign country, right? If you are British agents having the New York Times break a story is different. If you're American agents having the Guardian break the story is different, right? You, you have someone who you can't immediately put pressure on who is driving some aspect of the scenario. And if the press gets the story wrong, that's another great uh, way to play it. Is like you get sort of an, uh, a, a meta level as players of what the story looks like from the outside. You know, that, you know, James Rosen may be, you know, dogging your heels, but because he's just, you know, a, a simple Fox News reporter, he doesn't have the full story of the vampires or the crashed UFOs. And he's sort of revealing the parts of your story that make sense on the evening news. And you can also use reporters in the classic. Uh, setup where you have a supporting character get destroyed in order to establish the stakes and the danger so that the reporter who's been dogging you, you then find him uh, eviscerated or you find him in a shipping container and uh, there's a scrambled thumb drive uh, on his person that his attackers missed and you can get a little bit of information and now the investigative route becomes finding out who did that to the reporter and that gives you another uh, route in that also makes the antagonist seem scary. Yeah, the the Bourne movie that does that with the uh, Manchester Guardian reporter who's been investigating Bourne and has found out more about Bourne than Bourne has is a great uh, double twist on that on that riff. And certainly, anything from any of the Bourne movies is worth ripping off, and that certainly is. Uh, well, I think we've uh, well chewed over this particular espionage uh, story in the news and can move on to our next hut. is a hut that is full of the unfamiliar smell of crack cocaine being smoked, apparently. <laughs> uh, you all uh, have by now no doubt heard the exciting story of 
Robin's uh, personal mayor, uh, Rob Ford, <laughs> and personal nemesis, uh, <laughs> having been uh, caught apparently smoking crack on videotape. Although, as with all stories involving Rob Ford, the truth is drunker and more confused than it seems uh, to us Americans watching and pointing and laughing from the outside. So, Robin, why don't you continue your never-ending battle against uh, your uh, your great white whale? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, a great white whale indeed. Uh, so, uh, I guess we need to, to tear the, the lid off our uh, process a bit, and, and we do record these uh, 10 days in advance of their uh, dropping. And this is a story in which there are shoes dropping uh, every single day. So it is uh, currently Tuesday, May 28th. And by the time you're actually hearing this, uh, the heads of both Ford brothers may have exploded David Cronenberg scanner style and the city may be ruled by Triffids. But, uh, and so I suspect that we are, that this is not going to be our last segment on that. I did not know what I was getting into when I originally made the Rob Fort beat a regular uh, feature on this. Uh, oh, you knew uh, exactly what you were getting into. You just didn't yes. know how much fun it was going to be. But there's, <laughs> there's so much to cover that even though it's a, a story very much in progress as we speak, that there's certainly 15 minutes worth of it at this point. So, <laughs> Uh, you can jump ahead to the to the real news uh, after you listen to this. So here's the the story as uh, we have it today. Uh, on Thursday, May 16th, late in the day, uh, Gawker, the U.S. gossip blog, announced that they had seen a video of uh, what they say is clearly a well lit Rob Ford clearly smoking crack in the company of uh, presumed. Uh, drug dealers and uh, making a number of derogatory comments. He calls a liberal, uh, federal liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, a fag and refers to the uh, members of the football, the high school football team that he uh, coaches as just a bunch of minorities. And I think the word effing minority sounds like it's sort of uh, implicit there. Um, and within uh, about an hour of that, uh, one of Toronto's major newspapers, the Toronto Star, uh, which is a, a paper that's affiliated with the uh, centrist uh, liberal party uh, here in uh, Canada and has therefore been a consistent nemesis of the right-wing uh, Mayor Ford, announced that uh, they, in fact, had been were still reporting a story in which a couple of their reporters had weeks earlier been shown by the same group of people who are looking to be paid for possession of this video, uh, they have had a couple of reporters look at it a bunch of times and independently verified all of the details in the Gawker case, uh, revealing more details about uh, who it is who uh, possesses this recording. Um, they referred to them uh, repeatedly. Uh, in some corners felt they said too repeatedly that they were Somali drug dealers. And that's relevant to some extent insofar as uh, Toronto's drug trade after the big drug gang was rolled up uh, four or five years ago has sort of fractured into a whole lot of uh, mini gangs that are kind of divided along ethnic lines. That's like saying what which Tim Hortons you're going to meet at. Right. Uh, now, maybe the Somali community is correct in saying that once you establish that, you don't need to repeat it throughout the course of the entire article 11 times the way that uh, you can't seemingly talk about this story and just say crack, you have to say crack cocaine, uh, because it's redundant, but makes it sound worse, right? It makes it sound awesomer. Right. And shortly thereafter, trans and, and there was a there is a photograph of uh, our mayor uh, embracing three uh, of his uh, smoking companions, or our, our 
party hardy companions, whatever you want to call them. Um, and the faces of uh, two of them are blurred, and the other unblurred face is that of a man named Anthony Smith, who was between that photograph being taken and the uh, revelation of this has been murdered. Who, who knew that the uh, Somali drug gangs were such a bunch of NDP supporters? Uh, in insofar as they that the, the, they didn't like him hanging around with Rob Ford. <laughs> And rather than socially cut him, they just cut him. Uh, I'm not sure I, I see the connection there, but uh, let us forge on. <laughs> um, so the next day, uh, of course, a scrum of reporters appears uh, around his home waiting for him to respond to these allegations. And he basically says, that's ridiculous. And that's all he says. Um, <laughs> well. Now, it is certainly ridiculous. That is a true statement. Uh, but perhaps <laughs> we wanted a little more clarity on uh, whether you, you actually smoke crack and whether you hang out with drug dealers, one of whom was later murdered, you know, that all these minor little points that we're interested in from our elected officials. Um, on Saturday, uh, Gawker launched its crack starter campaign. This was an Indiegogo campaign to raise the $200,000 required to purchase a copy of this mobile phone recording from whoever has it. And Many days go by with no uh, particular further elaboration uh, from the mayor. The mayor and his brother, Councillor Doug Ford, who's a slimmer, older version of uh, of the mayor and is uh, his main ally and defender, uh, they usually have a two-hour call-in show on a local radio station. They canceled it that Sunday. Fast forward to uh, Wednesday, uh, the 22nd, when uh, Ford following a process that has already been rolling, is fired by the Catholic school board as the coach of the uh, Don Bosco Eagles football team. And uh, if you want to understand Rob Ford, the thing that he really cares about is not being mayor, but it's about coaching this football team. Now, on one level, this is a scam and an excuse for him to uh, skip work and divert staff resources to this particular football team and to uh, make himself uh, seem honorable and, and uh, a wonderful guy for helping out these uh, kids. Uh, but on the other hand, and it is a way for lobbyists to curry favor with him by donating to the team and so forth. But on another <laughs> level, it, you're, you're taking an awful long time to get to the other hand. <laughs> it, it is his, you know, true thing that he seems to really care about. You know, the only times he's ever been exper uh, witnessed experiencing anything resembling pleasure in public uh, is when he is coaching this football team. And there've been other, you know, a series of other scandals associated with that, including the scandal that, if you recall from a previous segment, almost got him booted out as mayor was about his conflict of interest uh, in terms of raising money from lobbyists using official stationery. And so uh, he was uh, fired as uh, the head of this football team because he had previously made really disrespectful remarks about his uh, players in the process of self-aggrandizing himself. He basically said that, uh, well, they would all be... Uh, dead or in jail if it weren't for my efforts as their football <laughs> coach and they're a bunch of gangbangers. He should take a, take a lead from uh, Jesse Jackson. You don't say that out loud. <laughs> you do not say that out loud. Well, Just leave that as the subtext. There is no subtext with Rob Ford. What's, <laughs> yeah. uh, when, when his mouth is opening, you are hearing his internal monologue vocalized, and it is uh, sometimes a greasy place. 
And he was not only fired as football coach, which got the headlines, but he has been banned from the property of all Catholic high schools in the city. Uh, something that does not normally happen when you're a mayor. <laughs> I don't think it happens normally under any circumstances. Uh, yeah, that's usually a black mark on one's escutcheon, <laughs> yeah, as it were. It's, it's not like, oh, well, yeah, he was an electrician, so obviously he had to be banned from the high school. Exactly. So uh, that's something bad to, to happen to you. So the next day, his... Uh, Chief of Staff, Mark Toey, is abruptly fired. And uh, several stories circulate uh, through sources coming out of City Hall as to why he was fired. And in the days since, the main narrative has coalesced as uh, that he, on the Friday after this bro broke, went to Ford and said, we've got a plane waiting for you. We're going to put you on that plane. You're going to go off, go to rehab, uh, presumably resign as mayor and then come back when you're better. And other parts of that story, though, suggested that uh, Toei was fired after he objected to being ordered to go to the school to take the $50,000 worth of equipment that Rob Ford had arranged to be uh, donated. Another narrative is that uh, he was fired when he balked at a request to, in, in all of this, in the wake of the firing, to arrange a pizza party for the football team that he was supposed to have no contact with on school grounds. But at any rate, uh, his chief of staff, the straight-laced, buttoned guy, who, to the extent that trains run in the Rob Ford offices, <laughs> is the guy who, who ran him, uh, was abruptly uh, fired and, and uh, left office. The next day, Ford uh, gets up and finally makes a, a statement, which basically, in almost its entirety, is... I do not smoke crack cocaine, and I am not addicted to crack cocaine. Note the present tense. Mm -hmm. um, so that was another non-denial denial, and apparently uh, we now know that his press staff wrote a much different detailed uh, speech that he was delivered, but then the Rob Ford family got a hold of it and rewrote it to uh, what you heard. So the next day, on the Saturday, the Globe and Mail, uh, one of our other major newspapers, this is with a, uh, and they have an ideology as well, and that's the ideology of the corporate Bay Street right. Uh, so this is the establishment right, uh, not the populist right, as represented by a tabloid paper called The Sun, which until recently was Ford's staunchest supporter. They then uh, dust off a, a report that they had uh, worked on for uh, months and uh, decided not to run with until it became relevant here. Uh, and that was a story that provided the family history of uh, Ford's uh, siblings. And uh, with that, the uh, sort of context in which one might ask oneself, is this the sort of uh, person who might wind up uh, smoking a bunch of crack with uh, a bunch of uh, drug dealers? And this established that uh, Doug Ford... Uh, his older brother, uh, in his uh, teen years and early 20s, in the 80s, in their suburb of Etobicoke, uh, was a mid-tier hash dealer <laughs> Okay. for a period of about six years. Um, and uh, that their uh, brother, uh, Randy, at one point helped kidnap a guy who owed money to a group of uh, hash dealers, including uh, uh, Doug Ford, uh, and that their sister, Kathy, had uh, dabbled for a while with uh, white supremacist organizations and had been involved in a couple of different shooting incidents, uh, one of which she was uh, shot in the face. So it's the story of a family. <laughs> so, 
So, so just to just to recap, yes, your mayor's sister was shot in the face while involved in white supremacist organizations, and it doesn't come out until three years into his term. What is what does Canada do instead of have a press? Well, there has <laughs> been the notion, and these things were reported. You guys just run Marmaduke cartoons, or how right. does that work? Well, of course, a gun crime gets reported, right? It's, yeah. it's not. There's um, like nine of them in in Ontario entirely, right? Right. It's not, um, and, and it's not unknown that that Ford himself has uh, a colorful domestic life, and there have been mm-hmm. domestic dispute calls and so forth. But especially for uh, you know a municipal position, you do not get the extensive scrutiny of somebody's family life the way you would if they were running for U.S. senator or. Uh, or president, where you all of that would be reported in in depth. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't immediately get a squad of people going out and vetting every mayoral candidate to that degree. Um, now, the whole apparently, according to at least one counselor, the Doug Ford uh, used to be a hash dealer story uh, was you know an open secret at City Hall, and and in fact, the existence of that Globe and Mail story that Globe was sitting on. Uh, everybody knew about that, uh, but they were just sort of waiting for that to drop because they needed basically the fig leaf of being able to say that this is now newsworthy because it paints a portrait of Rob Ford's family environment that can lead us to intuit whether or not this is a completely absurd story that he might himself have a substance Mm -hmm. abuse problem. And that the press culture of Canada is such that just the fact that he has these colorful family connections would not in and of itself be seen as an acceptable story, but would instead be seen as an invasion of privacy, that the uh, privacy of the uh, non-elected family, although, you know, one of these guys is actually an elected official. He's a counselor. Uh, And of course, both Ford brothers have been repeatedly on the record as pro-police and uh, anti-drugs and anti-marijuana. And, uh, uh, you know, so of course, if these stories are true, they are uh, giant hypocrites, of course. Well, I mean, one can have dealt hash in the past and come to regret it and now be against hash and be for the police and all kinds of things. Right. That does not make you a hypocrite. That makes you someone who realized that dealing hash is a terrible way to live your life. If you say so. <laughs> no, I, I, if, if I, I say so. I, I know plenty of people who used to be, you know, addicts or, or, or uh, involved in, in drug trade and have thought better of it now as they have mortgages and families. Sure. Um, <laughs> there is, of course, the the hypocrisy of arguing that people who get caught doing what you didn't get caught doing should be imprisoned, right? No, it's, no it, 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 because, again, you, um, uh, you are, you're basically saying that uh, having you know gone through this, I recognize that I did terrible things, and if I'd been stopped, it would have been better for me. Yes. If if they'd been going to events going, I used to do this, and I'm glad I didn't get caught, and it was bad that I did, and these mm. guys should go to jail, that would not have been hypocrisy. Uh, but, of course, there was a crucial codicil left out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, the next day, that takes us to... Uh, Sunday, this Sunday, when the Fords did not cancel their talk, their radio talk show, although for, uh, Rob Ford only uh, was there for the first hour of it, had to go uh, meet a family commitment. And uh, during this show, he more expansively uh, denied not only smoking uh, crack, but that the video even existed, which uh, I think assumes a fact, not in evidence. And uh, when a uh, caller called to ask him about it, they accused her of being a racist, and they referred to uh, the press as maggots. 
this brings us to uh, Monday, and this is then uh, when the press secretary and the assistant press secretary both resigned uh, from the uh, Ford administration, quote, on principle. Uh, they uh, sort of quietly left the building and uh, uh, left uh, Ford to come out and say that uh, they were going on to bigger and better things and that everything was fine. Right. They were going to go manage Lindsay right. Lohan. And, uh, and by the way, sorry for calling you all maggots. I've <laughs> been under a lot of stress lately, and I realize you're not all maggots. And late last night, the crack starter campaign uh, hit its $200,000 target, but it is not presently clear whether Gawker is actually still in contact with the people who are selling uh, the video or not, and in fact, whether it will surface. It's almost as though they're some sort of drug dealers. <laughs> uh, almost as if. Um, and, uh, but meanwhile, the uh, Toronto Star reporters have uh, uh, confirmed that apparently there is more than one copy of this. Now, one of the elements from the uh, Doug Ford expose is that one of the current other loyal aides to the Ford family, who's part of the Ford administration, uh, was also allegedly part of his uh, hash dealing ring and is therefore explains his long uh, history of uh, loyalty. And the man who's accused of, of that is named uh, David Price. Uh, to th just this morning, we have discovered that before Mark Toey, the chief of staff, resigned, uh, he went to Mark Toey and said, you know, just hypothetically, let's say that I know where the recording is. What should we do about that? Which perhaps explains that, Dave, you know, indicates that David Price is perhaps a well-connected gentleman as he knows the exact uh, apartment to go to in a sketchy neighborhood to recover the tape. Who, who knows how he knows this? But Mark Toohey being a, a straight-laced, uh, straight-shooting guy says, well, We've got to call the cops, mm -hmm. uh, which was perhaps not David Price's uh, instinct here. Desired answer, yeah. and that triggered a police investigation by homicide officers. Though apparently it is not a homicide investigation, uh, but just that they are the guys who are good at uh, untangling tangles. Also, oh, there's a, there's a dead guy involved in this somehow, and so it, you know, it might be connected to the homicide, right? They are not saying that. But it, you know, it stands to reason that if there's a photograph of four people and one of them is dead, that figuring out where the photograph is is part of the homicide investigation. You make an inference that I would not argue with. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure no one would argue with it. Although apparently the Canadian press has uh, is pickier than that. Well, the inference has been drawn, but <laughs> and and in fact the the guy there is a guy who is in jail right now who is charged with that uh, murder, and he says that he knows nothing about it and didn't shoot the guy and has no idea who he is. So yes, you'd, you'd be surprised how many people in jail charged with murder say roughly the same thing. Right, and so depending on how conspiratorial uh, one is, the conclusion that you draw from that is that either A, exactly the one that uh, you did, or B, that maybe someone else uh, shot him and maybe, you know, the Fords have good relationships with the cops. Who knows? It's a crazy world. And so uh, that is basically where we are with uh, shoes dropping every uh, day, sometimes uh, by the hour. And uh, it's an amazing story in sort of chutzpah in you know, straight laced button down Toronto is if you just have no shame whatsoever and are uh, capable of uh, remaining in denial, you can weather so far this giant controversy and uh, perhaps even more to the point, not go to rehab when you don't want to. Well, I mean, in a sort of more practically political thing, 
does this basically mean that uh, one assumes that the the councillors on the Toronto City Council would vote with the mayor would do it because of his political clout? Now, does this has this actually seemed to weaken his political clout? Is his, have his polls dropped? I mean, have, have the sort of people who who like Rob Ford do they still like him and say oh, a little crack now and again never hurt anybody? Or is it a thing where he is now losing his ability to to marshal his supporters, and so people are more willing to vote against him on you know whatever kind of you know, a monorail system or whatever it is he wants to build. He had lost his clout even before this story broke. Because of the other fracas. Because of the other uh, fracas and just, you know, his general incompetence and stupidity. The most recent demonstration of his loss of clout happened during all of this when uh, he has long been promoting a downtown Toronto casino. <laughs> well, it's, it's easier to get your crack and hash. You don't have to, you know, go out to the suburbs. You were not the first uh, person to draw that inference. Um, and so uh, that sort of foundered when it turned out that the uh, provincial government was unwilling to give Toronto the cut of the pie that even Rob Ford had hoped for. And so he wanted to just bury the vote. He just canceled the vote and said, oh, the casino's dead. But of course, if you just say the casino's dead without having the vote, that leaves an opening to come back later and relitigate it. Uh, mm -hmm. But his opponents on council forced a vote on the measure, uh, and the downtown T Toronto casino went down by a vote of 40 to 4. Well, that sounds, that sounds fairly definitive. Then. That's pretty definitive in terms of uh, one's pet issue going down in flames. My mayor's, my mayor's brother just manages Mark Wahlberg. I mean, I don't think that there's a... I, I, it, it's, a it's a pretty exciting parallel. I'll tell you what. Uh, it is. And when he did his media rounds to uh, staunchly deny those accusations, he did them uh, with uh, his suit jacket, his uh, dress shirt open-collared and, and wide-collared, and a gold chain around his neck, uh, prompting Wags to do a side-by-side -side comparison with uh, Pacino in Scarface. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, boy, he, sh he sure looked like uh, like a, a hash dealer as he was... Uh, Making the rounds. I would, I would have, I'd have thought more of James Gandolfini given the uh, body types. I, I, I don't think there's ever a shot of uh, Gandolfini with a gold chain that they were able to. Uh, oh, pull. I, I think that's just sloppy, um, uh, sloppy video research. Uh, it, it may indeed be the case, but at any rate, there is certainly a big uh, rump of supporters who are basically having a a faith demand moment, as we know that. Mm -hmm. uh, the more extreme your belief, the bigger dopamine hit you get from adhering to it. So there is a group of people who are still staunch Rob Ford supporters who basically don't believe that there is a video and that the entire media establishment actively lies and makes up stories to get to shoot down their favorite guy. Um, whether that will be able to withstand the uh, cognitive dissonance if an actual tape does surface or not, I don't know. Um, but even as you know, even before that, the leading uh, possible left candidate outpolls him decisively and continues to outpoll him. So he hasn't lost any more supporters than he has already lost, but he was already reduced down to the uh, hardest of the hardcore. Right. And then he's, in theory, got another, what, year and a half left on the term? Or how does that work? Uh, yeah. So he's got uh, another yeah year and a half to go. And, uh, you know... The thing is, is that his staying in office and not really doing anything is not really measurably, appreciably different from him being in office <laughs> and not doing anything before. It's just that it brings global embarrassment uh, onto the city, which uh, many people think is a bad thing. But uh, just as many are enjoying their schadenfreude when the 
uh, Taiwanese computer animation news, does a story on it, and so forth. So um, it certainly makes Toronto the good look like uh, Toronto the colorful, that's for sure. Yeah. And now, is I don't know how the parties work in municipal elections in Toronto, because I've only got so much free time. Is it a situation where, and I, I suppose he's in the Conservative Party? There are no parties per se in municipal okay. politics, but people's allegiances are very yeah. clear, uh, and especially their allegiances to the uh, provincial uh, le level and to a lesser extent to the federal level. And of course, the Rob Ford stink is wafting upwards and uh, making both the provincial uh, Tories and the now scandal-ridden uh, federal Tories uh, look bad by association because that there's more scandal. -y. Yeah. So is so is, is it a possibility that the like you say the the sort of the uh, the uh, business community the the other guys the the Globe and Mail side can they uh, find a sort of untainted but not not left side of the aisle guy who can sort of come in as the as the Tom Dewey of Toronto and say. As a clean-cut Canadian who does not uh, engage in such antics as um, uh, you know being in suburbs ever, I'm going to stand and maybe sort of use this as a way to sort of muscle the populist wing off the off the stage for a while. Those candidates have uh, run in the past and traditionally not done well, and mm -hmm. and it's because they can't like mobilize the suburbs the way that Rob Ford could. They, I guess. they don't have the populist uh, crowd of uh, Tim Hortons coffee drinkers. Mm -hmm. um, and are uh, generally uninspiring. Now, the the left probably would have held on to a council had a more inspiring candidate run for mayor uh, uh, last time. There was a very uh, nice, very uh, unassuming, uh, longtime sort of uh, second banana guy who ran last time and uh, and lost. The previous mayor uh, decided not to run again and, and uh, would have presumably been reelected had he run. So it, it, it's looking like, you know, whether it happens in the next couple of uh, months or whether it happens in a year and a half, you're probably going to go back to having a left city core type Toronto mayor for the next little bit. Is that, is there, is there a constellation of stars that makes that at all improbable anywhere? Or is it basically as, you know, as, as sure as that, um, uh, you know, California will, will vote Democrat. Um, it's it's not sure, certainly, because, you know, Rob Ford did get in as improbable as that seemed to a lot of observers at the time. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if one extrapolates current trends, uh, Olivia Chow, uh, one time a local politician, then a federal politician married to the now deceased NDP leader, uh, Jack Layton, will probably uh, is ahead in the polls. And if she decides to win, uh, she would be very hard for anybody to defeat, let alone somebody as mired in scandal as uh, Ford. Uh, if not, the uh, benches of the left side of council are actually pretty strong. And the uh, right side of council is kind of made up of, of uh, other loose cannons and crackpots. So it's hard to know. It's hard to envision a return to that. But then again, like I said, it was hard for a lot of people to envision Rob Ford uh, winning in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I know that um, uh, our listeners may not find uh, Canadian civic politics as interesting without the crack cocaine in it, but I am always uh, fascinated by what large cities do to govern themselves, given that I am in one. Well, I'm uh, certainly uh, looking forward to a uh, Toronto without any interesting mayor stories to tell, but I have a feeling there will be some <laughs> more interesting mayor stories in our uh, short-term future. The, there, there may be one last act to this Shakespearean drama. Thank you.
we rush out of Toronto City Hall and into the adjacent precincts of a whirring time machine where uh, Ken is going to whoosh us back to Baltimore in 1928. People may not know that the American space program began in 1928 in Baltimore. So, Ken, tell us, first of all, about the Baltimore space program of 1928. Uh, the Baltimore space program of 1928 was a uh, space program built on the strong back of three guys, uh, Harry and Sterling Uhler of Baltimore and Robert Condit, who was apparently from uh, Miami. And he uh, came to uh, Baltimore with a dream, and the dream was to be shot to Venus in a gasoline-powered rocket. And as everyone with a simple, uh, beautiful dream does in America, his dream came true, or at least part of it did. Uh, the Eulers and himself built the rocket. It was uh, it had 50 uh, gallons of gasoline. It was 24 feet long. It had water pipes on the inside to, to cool it and to store the water. Uh, there were, nothing could possibly go wrong except, of course, for the specific uh, pressure of gasoline, which was just enough to set off a giant fire and scare everyone, but not enough to send uh, the rocket to Venus. Uh, they um, sort of climbed out of the rocket and decided that they needed to build a booster to, on the bottom of their rocket, or else they wouldn't be able to go, but since that would take uh, $10,000 in their uh, uh, cost estimate... They figured that they would just give up on being rocketed to Venus. And that, uh, aside from apparently a popular restaurant in Baltimore called Rocket to Venus, is the end of the story. Robert Condit took his rocket down to Florida and vanished, uh, as one likes one's uh, eccentric rocketry pioneers to do, into the mists of history. And the Eulers sort of just stuck around in Baltimore and, you know, probably didn't buy a lot of beers for the next couple of years while they explained that they were just this close to getting to Venus in 1928. Now, the naive observer may look at that situation and go, well, that was just self-correcting. Of course, they had no chance of getting to Venus. If they'd proceeded any further, they probably would have blown up in a uh, cloud of orange-yellow vapor, and that there was sort of no threat involved in that, because certainly there was no chance whatsoever of their getting to Venus or doing anything else bad. And so, therefore, it's not something that requires the intervention of Time Incorporated. But those of us with access to confidential Time Incorporated records, of course, know that you did already go back in time and fix the timeline. And the story we know, as in the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis, is the story of the rectified timeline. So perhaps you could uh, take our specially cleared podcast listeners behind the scenes and uh, let them know what threat it was that you had to uh, go back and change the timeline to avert. The um, It's important to remember that in that era, the, the sort of the 1920s and early 1930s, there was a lot of rocketry going on at one or another level. Uh, the, we all, of course, remember Robert Goddard, the American uh, rocketry specialist who began in Massachusetts and then moved to Roswell, New Mexico uh, in, what was that, 1930. He moved to uh, Roswell in 1930. He had uh, worked with uh, Charles Lindbergh. He'd worked with the Guggenheims. So everything was in position for there to be a major American rocketry program going into World War II. Now, uh, the obviously, the other major rocketry program in the world was the German rocketry program, which also had its own ridiculous notion. Uh, in Magdeburg, a guy named Rudolf Nabel uh, decided to launch a rocket into the other side of the hollow earth uh, from Magdeburg, and once again planned to build a man-carrying rocket to do it, but uh, he was only able to build a scale model, which blew up, I think, on launch and did not uh, get to 
the the other side of the hollow earth but there were plenty of other um rocketry pioneers going going around in germany germany's rocketry program i think the german rocket society had more members than all the other rocket societies in the world put together the soviet rocket program and the british rocket program also existed but the but the real you know yards ahead uh in our timeline uh was the german rocket program now in the original timeline that i came no, back just just hold on for a sec it it um this may be a, a crazy thing to say, but it seems that uh, wanting to get your rocket into the hollow Earth is perhaps even nuttier than wanting to get your rocket to Venus. What uh, made him think that there was a hollow Earth to get his rocket into? It was the, uh, this is uh, something we can cover in a, uh, perhaps a later consulting occultist, but there was a very popular theory in Germany based on an American uh, book about the hollow Earth uh, by a man named Cyrus Reed Teed, who wrote a book called We Live Inside, which is about the fact that we are on the inside of the hollow earth and the sun is the molten core of the earth and that it is only the sort of hazy dust filtering down from the, 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 the rocks on the other side of the world that make the sky blue and opaque instead of clear. And if you could get a, a rocket, you know, past that uh, molten core of the earth, you could go to the other side of the hollow earth and have all manner of exciting adventures. And uh, this was uh, translated into German, I think by a guy named Bender in uh, right after World War One, there was one of these deals where you're convalescing in a prison camp, and the only book you have is a crazy book about the Hollow Earth, and it sort of takes over your life. And a lot of Germans apparently thought that the Hollow Earth, you know, was exactly the sort of um, uh, uh, the Hovelklara, as they called it, was exactly the sort of uh, truth that they needed to make Germany uh, better again. And the Magdeburg uh, rocket project was one such attempt to experimentally confirm this doctrine. So uh, that, I guess, uh, we'll, we will do another uh, uh, consulting occultist on that in the uh, in the future. So uh, you've got all of this uh, rocketry uh, going on in, in Germany and in America and elsewhere. So uh, how does this require your uh, intervention? Well, the thing that happened to the German rocket program is that they took the German rocket program and they used it to build uh, the V1 and the V2 and a number of other rockets. Uh, d uh, some of them that never got off the uh, uh, drawing drawing board or, or never got off the launch pad. The, the A3 was the rocket that was the, became the V2, and the I think the A5 was the one that was going to be an orbital rocket. And the Nazis put a lot of money into their rocket program. It was their version of the Manhattan Project in terms of the amount of GNP that they poured into it, uh, with the result that, as uh, later uh, studies pointed out, they managed to kill one uh, Briton for every two slave laborers they killed building the rockets. Uh, the rocket program in Germany was a colossal waste of money, colossal waste of resources. The V1s were relatively cheap, but still putting that same amount of effort into building a heavy bomber would obviously have paid off you know, with a great deal more strategic and tactical flexibility. So is that basically due to the, the romance of the, the rocket that caused them to uh, colossally misspend all of these money and effort and lives? Yeah, it, 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 it's a romantic thing. It's, it's a dramatic sort of a, a you know, war-changing type weapon. If you, could, if you could make a ballistic missile work and you could put a nuclear warhead on it, obviously it, it might have changed uh, the, the, the course of the war. But uh, between Heisenberg's inability to do simple math and uh, the Germans' inability to do anything correctly, they uh, screwed that up. Well, Heisenberg was uncertain. <laughs> yes, yeah, it it's either a 12 or a 14. I don't know, whichever. Um, uh, <laughs> Professor Heisenberg, do you know how fast you were going? <laughs> no, but I know where I am. Um, 
Anyway, <laughs> but the uh, but uh, again, if they'd loaded those rockets up with the nerve gas that they had uh, stockpiled, that also might have had an effect. And the effect, of course, would have been the immediate nerve gas bombing of Germany, which is why they didn't do it. But uh, as it was, the German rocketry program, the German ballistic missile program, was a colossal waste of uh, money and effort. And had the American rocket program continued as it did in the original timeline, with Goddard using Guggenheim's fortune, with uh, Lindbergh lending all of his prestige to it, with a huge American rocketry program being built, it would have very, uh, it would have in that timeline. Uh, closed off a lot of other experimental weapons research. There would have, at the very least, been another Manhattan Project-sized bite taken out of the war effort. And that is the sort of thing that, while we still win the war, it takes just that little bit longer to do it, because we have just that many fewer Liberty ships, and just that many fewer Sherman tanks, and just that many fewer uh, P-51s, and just that many fewer uh, B-25s. And as a result, you wind up having to drop a nuclear weapon on Germany. And it was felt by the good people of uh, Time Incorporated that if we could just shorten the war by just that little bit, just that fragment of a space, uh, obviously we build the first atomic weapon in June, uh, Germany in the new timeline surrenders in May, if we can just save that month uh, in any way, and I decided that the simplest way to do it was to take the nascent American rocketry program uh, send Goddard uh, into uh, Roswell, New Mexico for his tuberculosis to uh, distract Guggenheim with a series of uh, art purchases and drunken orgies and generally uh, turn Charles Lindbergh's attention to the very real problem of gold confiscation that I was able to divert the resources behind the American rocketry program such that our rocketry program became a sideline, became a thing that no one really took seriously in the halls of power. And in order for that to happen, what I have to do is take uh, the original Robert Condit and swap him for a different guy of the same name uh, <laughs> who doesn't know how to build a rocket. And it was just the simplest way to do that. The original Robert Condit was a, was a brilliant rocketry uh, scientist who we took with us back to uh, Time Incorporated for our war against the Krell. But the new Robert Condit that we found in Miami was sort of an amiable drifter who was able to talk people into building giant gasoline bombs in Baltimore. And so, in order to sort of minimize the uh, disruption of the time stream, we sent that Robert Condit up to Baltimore, and instead of getting a, uh, a, 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 a American martyr of the first ballistic missile journey to Venus, the way that we did in, our, uh, in the original 1928, we got a hilarious gas fire and a pretty good diner. And I think that Time Incorporated agreed that the uh, continued existence of Dresden and the, um, uh, or Hamburg, I forget which city it was that we bombed in the original timeline, and the um, uh, existence of that, of the Rocket to Venus diner in Baltimore, more than made up for Robert Goddard having to put up with a lot of squirrely looks. Well, I was going to say that I was uh, relieved that this solution didn't have any actual Venusians in it, because that would introduce all sorts of continuity and reality level questions about the Ken's Time Machine mythos, but then there's the war with the Krell, so I, I guess uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Well, we, we, um, uh, Venus is not capable of supporting um, uh, aggressive imperialistic life, as you well know. <laughs> as I well know, indeed. And uh, once we uh, hit a point that I well know, and that, of course, all of our podcast listeners well know, I think it's uh, time to uh, heave a sigh of uh, Rob Ford style relief, and uh, <laughs> although not too Rob Ford style, one hopes. Uh, yes, it is the, the chemical content of this exhalation is perhaps not the same, but uh, I think it is time after this uh, 
epic length of Rob Ford enlarged installment uh, that we uh, creep out of the podcast for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Sell us your grainy cell phone video at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. 